Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. In conjunction with LA Opera's presentation of Breaking the Waves, which was co-commissioned with Opera Philadelphia and Beth Morrison Projects, we are pleased to offer this conversation between Joshua Winograde, the Senior Director of Artistic Programs at LA Opera, and some of the members of the creative team behind Breaking the Waves, creative producer Beth Morrison, composer Missy Mazzoli, and librettist Royce Fabric. This conversation was recorded in February of 2021. It's a real pleasure for me to be here. My name is Joshua Winograd. I'm the Senior Director of Artistic Programs at LA Opera. And on behalf of all of us here, I want to thank you for joining us today for this very special event. Welcome, everybody. It's great to be here. Thank you. Nice to be here, as always. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. I think that the best place to start in, in discussing Breaking the Waves is um, in, in its origins. So without being any more specific than that, I would love to turn this over to the three of you to talk a little bit about um, how the work came into existence. Over to you, Royce. <laughs> well, it actually really started um, due to Missy's amazing opportunity at Opera Philadelphia as a composer in residence. Uh, And Missy came to me and said that she really wanted to focus the latter part of her residency there on the writing of a particular piece. And so I, it it took a little while to convince Missy that this was the right, um, the right road to go down and the right piece to, to write together at that time. Um, But I did, but I did, Missy can tell you a little bit more about, uh, about that. Um, But it's a movie that I saw when I was 15 years old and it, completely changed my perspective on on life and art. And uh, it's just something that I've known that I I wanted to be in in further dialogue with. Uh, And Missy is just the most extraordinary composer. And I can think of no better person to to create this like absolute passion project with. It's just been, it's been a game changer for us both. Um, And uh, I don't know that we knew at the time just how much it was going to change our, our careers. Um, but it certainly has done that. Yeah, and as Royce mentioned initially, I was I was hesitant just because I think it's such an amazing film. You know, this is based on the 1996 film by Lars von Trier, and um, I, like Royce, you know, just had so much admiration for von Trier and, and for this film in particular. It's actually my favorite von Trier movie, and um, I was like, I, what what can we do? to bring this to life on the stage, like why? And then, but it was an idea that wouldn't leave me alone. And I I remember, um, I I just kept thinking about it. I kept starting to be able to hear the music and imagine what I could do with these characters. And I think, you know, opera's, one of opera's greatest superpowers is it's an ability to create layers of psychological meaning. Um, So in the movie, you you, there's no film, there's no score that is like underscoring um, most of the action, you know? So you're just left with this very raw, um, image. And um, I thought, you know, with scoring, with music, with um, a beautiful set, you know, I could do so much to illuminate the psychology of these characters. So there's this very funny moment. We were in um, Shade Bar in New York City um, in the West Village. And I was like, let's just, let's just do it. Fine. Let's just do it. <laughs> you know, And that was like the moment when we, um, he convinced me and, uh, and the rest is history. And then, well, the rest is not history. The rest is, you know, we have some, we actually needed help making this happen <laughs> um, beyond the residency in Philadelphia. And so enter Beth Morrison. Yeah. I mean, you know, how, what year was this when the, uh, when the idea came to light, Missy, that, that you guys were ready to get going on this? 
I think we, uh, it was 2013, early 2013. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, I just think back to like where we all were in 2013 and the seven years that have intervened between 13 and 20 um, is kind of unbelievable, actually, what has happened in all of our careers. And this, this being certainly one of the life-changing moments um, for, for you guys and, um, you know, kind of just one of one of the many in a way um, that we've all experienced in these last seven years. I think it's been kind of pivotal seven years for 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 us and kind of the others in our kind of cohort of our generation. We had kind of come off of um, Song from the Uproar, which was your first opera and which was such a big success. And um you know, which we had the wonderful fortune of doing also with LA Opera um, a few years ago, and um, and I and you know with you winning the Opera Philadelphia residency and them coming to me um, and saying, you know, you know Missy, and you know you we want you on us on this project with us because it makes all the sense in the world and me just feeling so grateful to have that opportunity to join breaking the waves with you. And, and then James Dara, like stalking you because he loved your, your music so much. And just like, basically like begging to be part of this project. And like now just feeling like how, how could he not have been the director on this project, you know, like it's just, I, I can't even imagine what Breaking the Waves would have been without him. I mean, his contribution was so extraordinary and um, and just being able to have been part of the workshopping process and Opera Philadelphia was so incredible with what they provided. Um, it was such a incredible, robust workshop process um, that they, you know, through the Mellon Foundation support were able to provide um, for this project, it was really kind of a dream, really, uh, in in what how this was developed um, over over the years, and then the glorious world premiere, and then BMP being able to give it its New York premiere um, in our prototype festival was really really one of the crowning jewel moments um, in our prototype festival for sure. You know, I want to talk soon about the kind of mechanics of, of of putting it together once you all settled on actually making it a piece. But before that, I was going to ask, you know, the the film that Missy and Royce, you already said you loved so much. It's challenging material. It's I mean, it's not um, this is not light uh, material, which is not new for opera. There is something about, you know, the there is something about the power of the human voice with classical training and an orchestra that kind of lends itself to difficult material historically. Um, but I'm just wondering if we could talk about what it was um, in this material that you thought, uh, I, I, I can see this being a successful musical theater work. Yeah, I mean, you know, Royce and I are always saying to each other, you know, opera is a place for big ideas. It's the most massive format in music. Um, with which to express yourself. Um, you have these shows that are often very long and it, they're just, it's a massive platform. We didn't want to waste that on something that was was at all trivial. And I, I'm also just not good at writing funny things. Like I think our, our new opera for the Met has like, like 10 jokes in it and Breaking the Waves has two. And it's like, so I'm working my way up there, but like, I'm just, I, I tend towards the dark, you know? This is my style, like unapologetically, like I, 
um, I'm interested in the darker sides of human nature and human behavior. And I, I think I, I want to investigate those because that's what's interesting to me. This really fit with that. And I, I think that, you know, when I saw Breaking the Waves, and I, I, I watched the movie probably three times early on before I started writing, um, you know, it struck me as this, the story that uh, felt very familiar to me. You know, Bess is the main character, Bess, and her story uh, felt like an extreme, you know, terrible dramatization, but a, a, a reference of the, an experience that women have all the time. Um, so I thought, okay, this is like taking a, a woman's experience of being told what to do by everyone around her. So like in, in, in the movie and in the opera, um, you know, her husband's telling her what to do. The church elders telling her what to do. God is telling her what to do. Her sister-in-law is telling her what to do. Her mom's telling her what to do. And they're all kind of telling her different things. Um, and so her behavior is always wrong. And so that's the way, the lens through which I saw the entire process and with the lens through which I saw all the material. Um, and this was a feeling that was very familiar to me. I think it was even more familiar to uh, my mom and the older women in my family. Yes, this is like a very, it's a very unrealistic, crazy dramatization of that experience taken to a, a, an extreme. Um, but I think that's what opera is for. Yeah, and I, I can uh, pick up on that. I, opera, you sing your emotions. And I think that Emily Watson's performance in the film is such an emotional tour de force that I just, there, there was something about it that felt operatic just at that very basic level. And then I, I love the story. And I think that it, it's something that really, it, it puts you through it. You go through, you're put through the ringer with this one. Um, but that's even at, a, at the age of 14, I, I loved seeing films like that. I loved watching both men and women being given really, really challenging material and knocking it out of the park. It reminds me of like Francis McDormand in Nomadland, which uh, is another one of those just amazing feats of commitment. And for this to be Emily Watson's first film, it just, I was completely dazzled. Um, and so those are the extra narrative reasons why I, I felt like this could, could really withstand a, an operatic treatment. You know, I, I'm reminded of, of a story, which is that uh, I heard Carlisle Floyd, who um, wrote the libretto and the score for um, one of his several operas um, of Mice and Men. And he said that he got stuck taking the dialogue out of the Steinbeck and that it wasn't until he literally threw the book away, which probably is, you know, blasphemous to some, but it wasn't until he literally threw the book away and then just relied on what he remembered of the book that he started being able to write a libretto. So Royce, I'm kind of curious, you know, obviously a screenplay of this work exists. It, it was a movie, you know? So how does, how does that happen for you to create a libretto that is not a, a simple setting of a screenplay, obviously? Yeah, so a lot of it is the distillation of the ideas. Uh, because, uh, so for Lincoln and the Bardo, for instance, which Missy and I are in the thick of, um, I believe the book is around 70,000 words and I get about 8,000 to tell the story. So it's a lot of whittling away. And and I would say, I, it's not so much that I need to get rid of their language. I love wrestling with another writer's words. I feel like it unlocks something so magnificent. Um, and I, there's a confidence that I gain in, in taking cells of phrases and, and finding the poetry. Um, and it just, it pushes my words into a new dimension. So um, I did take the screenplay and, and distilled it and took as, as many phrases as I could possibly, that made sense to me uh, from the screenplay. And then there was a time when I put the screenplay away and said, this has to exist um, on its own terms. It's its own animal. Uh, but then about a year after that, I remember I picked up the screenplay one more time 
And there was a scene that I, I reinserted uh, based on, on the reading of, of the screenplay a year later. So um, yeah, so that's a, a, a sort of wind around answer to, yes, you, you have to throw away the book and let it be its own thing, but um, you also have the gift of this language. So um, it's there to, to be used. And I, I tend to use quite a bit. And Missy, and is there, I mean, it's a, it's an incredibly kind of um, overly simplified question and, and I apologize in advance, but are you able to speak to kind of like, what is your process? Like when, when, when you decided, okay, this has to be a work, did you have like a sonic universe in your mind that you thought this work existed in or, or did you need to wait for Royce to give you something to actually start to set? How does it work for you? Well, everything comes from the words for me. So the, I, it's, I often have a full draft of the libretto before I start writing music. Um, and then the music is just, it, it just, the, the words suggest music to me. And, and to me, like the plot and the story always wins. And so I can't be writing music that is against the character or against the story, even if it's, I think it's great. You know, it's like, um, I have to be in service to, to the story and the words. Um, and I also say that, you know, a lot, a lot of the initial um, sonic ideas came from this trip that we made to Scotland um, in 2014. Opera Philadelphia, through support of the Mellon Foundation, sent us to Scotland for a couple of days, um, 10 days, actually. And we, um, so many of my ideas for that overture that some of you may have heard if you were in the waiting room earlier, um, came out of the, my experience of the natural landscape of the Highlands. Um, it was my first time in Scotland and I was really just struck by this natural landscape and, and the contrast in, in that landscape. So the way that like rock formations just like jut out of meadows and it's like, it was a landscape of extremes that I'd never um, really experienced before. And that um, I remember being on this walk with Royce and coming up with what became the first chord of, of the opera. Um, and I'm not someone who's usually inspired by nature. Like, as I mentioned, I'm inspired by dark human behavior. <laughs> so the idea of being, in, this was a very rare moment, but it was so clear to me that the opera had to begin by literally setting the scene and placing us in that natural landscape. And Beth, so there's there's the moment of where the light bulb hat goes on in the shade bar in the West Village. And at what point after that was this a project of yours? When I got invited into it by Opera Philadelphia, because it was part of Missy's residency there, and they were just so generous to know that I'd had this long relationship with Missy, and that it made sense um, for me to be part of the process um, because of that. And uh, it, it was wonderful working with them on it. Um, we continue to work on things together. We actually have a premiere coming up with them. We're making a movie for them uh, of David Little's piece, The Black Lodge, right now. Um, and so it's a, it's a great relationship for my company um, that started with Breaking the Waves. Um, and um, it was wonderful to be part of that workshop process along the way. And, you know, we have a, <laughs> Missy and Royce and I have a shorthand. Uh, that's very, very easy. <laughs> we can say one sentence and it conveys a lot. Um, so it's, it's, it's very easy to, to work together. I'm wondering if I could ask the three of you kind of um, organically to talk about uh, the assemblage of both the um, design and creative team and um, from Philadelphia, as well as the cast, both specifically and also maybe just what your processes are for um, being involved in, the, in, in selecting people who are going to 
take what you've made and, and give it a physical life. Yeah, I mean the um well the design team is is um I, I think this is normal pulled together by the director. You know, so in hiring James as a director, we're hiring him for his also for his good choices in collaborators. And this was such an amazing team. So we had Pablo Santiago on lighting, Adam Larson on projection design, Adam Rigg on set design, Chrissy Carbonides on costumes. These are people who immediately, it was like an immediate family, like that first day, you know, and I was like, I remember thinking, these are people I'm going to work with forever. Um, And most of them, for, for, I think maybe all of them, it was their first opera. I think that was, this is very intentional. And James wanted people who did not have this set idea about how opera was supposed to go as opposed to film and TV. And he wanted it to be at the standard of an amazing TV show, an amazing movie. And they brought it. I mean, it was, it was just such a, such a treasure. That design team, um, like James has sort of keeps that design team in different forms for many of his other projects and they've gone on. So like we did Prism with LA Opera, um, Ellen Reed's opera that won the Pulitzer and Pablo and Adam were both part of that design team as well as of course was James. Um, so that's that team started with Breaking the Waves um, but it has continued um, with many, many things that James has done including um, the amazing Prism. And then about cast, Royce, do you want to talk about cast? Yeah. Um, so the first cast member that we brought on was Eve Giliotti, um, I believe, as Dodo. Um, and she, was she around for that first experimental workshop even? We had so yeah. many amazing workshops where, um, like the role of Jan, John Moore, uh, was so informative in the way that that role um, developed. Um, and because the act two has such a strange vocal effect needed, he's he's incapacitated, he's paralyzed. And so we, we had to work with our performer to really find out that, that language, that way that he was gonna communicate. Um, and Kira Duffy was just, I, we went to Carnegie Hall to see her in, in Pierrot um, and just completely blew our mind, uh, minds plural. And, uh, and Zach James has been a collaborator of mine for 10, 15 years. So bringing him on as Terry um, was was a, a a great addition to our our world, and then we had David Portillo, um, who sang Doctor Richardson, and that was just he was a, a new addition to our family, but we absolutely adore him. And what's interesting is that these people they really do feel like a family. Not only a Breaking the Waves family, but these are our these are our, our colleagues who we write everything for. It seems like um, John Moore was improving up, and I, I'm sure that we're going to write. 25 more operas for him. He's actually going to uh, be in uh, The Listeners, our, our next opera for Opera Philadelphia. Um, uh, we, I've done quite a bit of work with Eve. Um, we're about to write a song for Zach. Um, it's just these people become such a huge part of our artistic lives. And, um, and it, it seems crazy that that was the first time that we worked with most of them because they've gone on to become really, really huge parts of our, of our creative lives. Well, and remember, we um, we actually premiered Jan, the aria, this, his name is Jan, with Marnie Breckenridge um, at my leader event at BAM in 2013. And um, Marnie, of course, was in Dog Days, which, of course, BMP, that was our first collaboration with LA Opera in 2014, um, which Royce wrote the libretto for, and Dave Little did the, the music for. Uh, we're all connected. <laughs> it's like, this whole group is like all, we're all joined. Well, um, but I mean, Marnie did that's... such a beautiful 
wonderful job with that aria as well. Beth, your point is a really good one, which is it's a, it's a pretty small world and it always has been. But uh, I was wondering, you know, now that you're assembling teams of people, both creatives and performers, um, as well as instrumentalists, I mean, now that you're assembling teams of, of people to, to give these works life, um, I'm wondering, is there something changed in the times that, that um, you know, enables there to be a whole population of people able to deliver different kind of nuanced performances or that come to the table with new or more contemporary skills as the art form itself is changing? The idea that um, there will always be a place for someone with just an incredible voice to kind of come out on stage and sing and impress people, but that that might not be what you're looking for all the time. I've never been looking for just that, um, for BMP, like that's just never been enough. Um, I've always, uh, for, for me, like I've always needed the, the performer that has the ability to be the most extraordinary actor. Um, and those, those things have to go hand in hand. Um, and sometimes depending on what the role is, sometimes the acting is more important to me than the gorgeous voice, um, you know, it's ideal when you have both of those things, but um, depending on what the role is, like I, I, I wanna be moved and a, a, I need a great actor to move me, um, but it depends, you know, every role is different. Every role requires something different. I also, for BMP's work, most of our work is amplified and so, um, you know, if you're working in a very large house unamplified, you need you need voices that can do that. Uh, and, you know, you need voices that obviously are highly skilled in bel canto training to be able to project. So in our work, in the houses that we work in, um, being amplified, we have a little bit more leeway um, in, in the types of casting that we can do. Um, but yeah, we like it all. We like to have the triple threats. <laughs> And um, Missy and Royce, I mean, as you're creating these characters and, and these um, works, are you, well, first of all, are you writing for specific people in mind? I think you really, you spoke a little bit about that. And second of all, if, if not specific people, are you writing for a specific type of artist? Generally, I think it's always best to have the performer in mind who's going to do the world premiere. And really, Missy and I have a bit of like we have input in the world premiere, but as the pieces get lives or have lives uh, moving forward, um, we become less involved in in the casting. It seems like it just. But so I think it's really important for us to really define our world by the people that populate it. Um, and I most of the shows that I'm working on right now that are even in the treatment phase. Um, we are starting the conversations about casting, and I'm guessing that maybe a few notes will be written before the whole cast is put on the projects. But um, but we generally, for the leads, like to know who it is because we like to lean into what make those those performers special. Um, and I know that um, Missy and David and and all of the composers that I work with generally have conversations with the singers to find out what they like. What are the the secret things about your voice that that we can exploit in a beautiful way to, to make us both look amazing. Uh, because when the performers look good, we look good. So um, that's that's sort of the, the name of the game. All of what both of you said and and is exactly how I feel. And I, just to echo Beth's idea of not just hiring a beautiful voice, but someone who can act. And for me, it's also as a composer, I want someone who is going to put the work before themselves. 
Like I, I, I don't, I think like when we're in the rehearsal room, you know, the best idea always wins no matter who it comes from in that room. Like I don't put myself at the top as a composer. I don't put the director at the top. No one is really at the top. Like the work is the boss and we all need to like put ourselves and our egos aside to bring the work um, up to the highest level. And that sounds like, uh, that sounds sort of obvious, but it's not always been the case. Um, that's not the case with everybody. And so, but I'm looking for those people who are really brilliant, great actors, great singers, and, you know, humble and willing to do the work to put the, to elevate the piece as a whole. And also, I, I come from the musical theater and, and Missy and I are really excited. We're hopefully going to, going to write a musical at some point soon. Um, but in musical theater, you, you have the triple threat is the, the thing you have to have those skills. And the thing is, is that there are opera singers who are amazing actors and, some of them can probably tap dance too. Um, and so why not use those amazing, amazing singular talents to, to populate your worlds? And so if there weren't those people, um, that would be one thing, but we live in a world with such talented people. Thank you all. We have about uh, 10 more minutes. And so I wanted to um, start uh, looking into the questions that have been flooding in from, from our viewers. Um, so uh, in no particular order, well, in the order in which I received them, here we go. Uh, first, um, Missy spoke uh, earlier about Scotland, um, uh, the landscape being an, in an inspiration. I'm curious, uh, where do you write your music? Is it in a ritual? Is it in the same space? Or do you find that you can be creative in uh, a variety of spaces? And I'd, I'd be curious for uh, Royce and Beth to speak to that as well. But Missy? Yeah, I mean, you're looking at it. <laughs> this is my, my home studio. <laughs> and this is where I do all my writing. I mean, definitely for the last year. Um, and I've been lucky enough to like do some residencies and stuff. I mean, the problem with being a composer is it needs to be quiet. You know, so it's, it's, I wouldn't say that I can work anywhere, um, but um, yeah, when we're on the road, I do a lot of writing in hotels and things, and um, I'm not precious about it. I don't need like an anechoic chamber with like room service. You know, it's just like, I just, I try to be able to do it anywhere because that's my life. That is 100% my experience as well. Um, you just, you have to be able to like, just, if, if you have a deadline tomorrow and you're in, in Tel Aviv, you've, you've got to, you've got to spend those four hours and, and get her done. Um, and I, and rituals are sort of the, those are tricky because then you, you get into this thing. And if we did have a routine that was set that if we knew that we were at our particular desk from 10 AM to 2 PM, then that would be one thing, but our lives are so erratic. Um, uh, they haven't been, they've been erratic in a new way over the past year, but, um, but yeah, just to like, to think of the travel that we were doing and, and just the the different time zones and the different things that you were expected to to be present at, and so you you really have to just be able to take a, a one hour window of time and 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 get some work done uh, if if necessary. Beth, I'd love to have you start the ne uh, answer the next question uh, or start it at least, which is as these works, but I'm also going to add as so many of your works have gone outside of this country, even though. Um, even though in the source material and the international nature of all the creatives that you're bringing into all these things, I think that there is, you know, a very kind of, um, we, we are all very proud of the, the fact that this is contemporary American operas in a lot of cases. Um, and the question is, um, as you take these works and this opera specifically internationally, is there a um, variety of receptions to it that was surprising to you or 
or uh, is our national boundaries not influential in, in critical and audience response? Well, Missy and Royce will have to speak to taking this opera internationally because this um, production that I was a part of um, was not the production that was done internationally. So they'll have to, they'll have to speak to that. Um, I have obviously have toured many, many, many other productions of many, many other operas um, internationally um, that are American operas. Um, and uh, so in terms of different subject matters, difficult subject matters um, that we've taken, it's always interesting and different. I mean, you know, we we took Angel's Bone, which is a piece about uh, Royce's piece uh, and Ju Yun's piece that won the Pulitzer, took it to China um, last year. And, um, you know, it's a piece about sex trafficking, essentially. And um, in order to do it um, and not be censored, uh, the um, presenter was really very clever around how it was marketed and um, how it was put forward to um, to the, to the censors. Um, and, uh, and she was very careful with us in terms of how we were able to talk about it, things we were allowed to say in public. And, um, so it, it, you know, you kind of feel your way through these kinds of things. Um, and, and I'm always trying to, I'm always trying to do right by the local host. Um, and to make the best possible experience for them um, of the work that we bring. I'm never trying to stir up trouble. Um, I, I'm hoping to create the best possible experience with the artistic work that we're bringing with the artists that we're bringing. Uh, but Royce and Missy can talk about bringing this piece uh, abroad. Yeah, um, this piece has done really well in, in all of the, the markets that it's been in thus far. Um, both in America, and then we uh, did it in Scotland, and then uh, it's been done in Adelaide. Uh, and so all of the, the press was really, really supportive. Uh, we, we did sort of experience the, the magic of the, the polarizing press outlets in London, um, where it does seem like the, the papers are really um, aligned with um, the different political parties. And so, of course, the more conservative newspaper um, sort of uh, wagged a finger at us for being a little too prurient, they said. But um, then we got glowing reviews from other outlets. So, and, you know, if it, it's a badge of honor for the conservative press to, uh, to you know, to tisk tisk a little bit. <laughs> this piece in general, anyways, is a, is a controversial piece. I mean, it was controversial in the States in with the audiences and with the press. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it, it's, subject matter the way it's received is brings about you know a lot of conversation a lot of discussion and I think it's I don't think that's a bad thing I think that that's something that we don't shy away from in the works that we choose to produce in the works that we choose to commission it's like we want the artists to do the work that they feel is important to put out in the world and this piece is is a piece that it, it strikes a chord in, in different ways with different people who see it. And that's not a bad thing. Um, it, you know, it's, it's a conversation starter in a lot of ways. Well, and Beth, we've also had experiences where we've had work done in New York that has gone to Texas, for instance, and the, right. the reception in smaller centers in America can be just as like can be wildly different yeah. than the actually get in New York. Totally so than the urban centers. Yeah. yeah. I mean, um, the US is so 
wildly different in, as we know from just our politics, you know, um, you know, we do our homes, BNP's homes are New York and Los Angeles, and we so celebrate those cities and love being, you know, our work being presented in those cities so much and, and are so welcomed in those cities. Um, but yeah, when we took dog days to, you know, Fort Worth, Texas, they didn't really like us that much. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm sure they did. They just showed it in a different way. Um, uh, a couple more questions about the opera and then a couple more general uh, ones. Um, one question that came in is, as Missy said earlier, the, mu the, the movie doesn't have a, a new score component, you know, to speak of. One uh, fan of, of the movie says that um, he did notice that it is punctuated very strongly um, with striking use of pop songs and wonders um, if that uh, being such a central element of the film came, you know, found a way to kind of creep into um, what you wrote. Yes. Um, and we we thought a lot about that formally as we were coming up with the structure, um, because, you know, the, the film is, I think, in like 13 or 14 chapters. And each chapter has a sort of chapter title where it's this beautiful, like almost static image against a like 70s pop songs so like Leonard Cohen or Deep Purple or something um, or Elton John. And we struggled about, you know, how to turn it into like a three act structure. Um, and where would those interludes fit in, if at all? And in the end, we decided to not put them in um, as a way of differentiating the opera from the film. But there is a moment um, in the opera when Bess you know, puts on a record player, and it's something that happens in the film. In the film, she puts on a record player and you hear um, Elton John's Yellow Brick Road. Um, and so I wrote my own sort of like imitation of Elton John, which ended up being this like Elton John, David Bowie, Missy Mazzoli mashup, which was so fun. And I got some friends in Brooklyn who have a recording studio and have a, we created this like mini seventies band and just like rocked out. And that's the music you hear um, coming out of the record player. So that was our sort of nod to that aspect of the film. Well, and Missy, I would also argue that the, um, the use of guitar in general is the electric guitar sort of has like a 70s rock vibe, even though it's not used in that way. But there is something, when I think of electric guitar, I think of Deep Purple and and that kind of awesome music from, from that era. Yeah, it's a, and Bess's relationship with music is so important. Um, she, she's in love with music. You know, the outsiders have brought their music to her. It's so, it means so much to her and like brings her to life, but it's forbidden by the church. So yeah, it was important to have that element in there somehow. And you're right, the electric guitar is that. And speaking of the film, uh, were there any elements of the film uh, that you had to leave behind that you found particularly painful? No, not, not that I can think of. Um, the great thing about having such a masterpiece as the, the initial document is that it exists. So the magic is there. Our, our opera is its own thing. So we've included all of the things that we needed to tell the story. And anything that's left out is still part of that magnificent film. So it's um, it's there to experience, but um, I can't think of a single thing that we had to sacrifice for for the opera. So the last question about this work before uh, asking another one or two um, about more general topics is um, if you could talk a little bit about now that this piece has had two different productions, um, talk about the the difference, not not just you know stating the difference between the two, which which are is striking, but the difference in the experience between the two productions for you. 
Well, um, we should say that it's actually had three. Um, so West Edge Opera did one directed by Mark Straczynski um, last uh, summer of 2019. And then there's one that's being worked on for Switzerland, um, St. Gallen, Switzerland, which is a, a totally new production. Um, and the difference is, um, you know, there's a lot of difference in scale. Um, you know, the, the production, the second production, which is directed by Tom Morris, and produced for Scottish opera. It just, it was built for bigger theaters. And so it has like a revolve and, and there's something grand about that scale. Um, there's also something that you miss in the intimacy of it. I think that James's production, the original production um, that we do with BMP and Opera Philadelphia um, manages to create this, um, this, this amazing sense of intimacy that you are very close to everybody, even if you're not actually close to them. And that's something that I'm always trying to achieve in opera. So I think that for me is the first the first thing that comes to mind. Yeah, and we also we didn't get to see the West Edge performance because we were in Scotland. So that was a, a first for me, not being able to experience a an interpretation of our work. Um, and I hope, God willing, there'll be many of them that uh, that we unfortunately have to miss because work or something to that effect. But uh, but yeah, it was a weird thing to sort of uh, experience it peripherally. Um, well, it was parallel to our our big huge. Scottish opera spectacle. It really is a sort of a, a mammoth version of, of this piece. And it, it was great to make a case that it could exist in that sort of grand opera way. Um, I also think that James's production can exist in a grand opera sort of way. Um, but uh, yeah, it's just, they, they're so wildly different. The use of technology in Tom's version is quite striking. And just the, the minimalist beauty in James's is intoxicating. So they both have an unbelievable merits. We have uh, two more questions that I think I'll ask at the same time because they're not unrelated. One is what are the general challenges that you face as creators of, of new works um, that are different today than they would have been another time? And then there's another question about how the pandemic specifically has affected other, other than in every single possible way, uh, how how you know it, it has affected you in a way that you want to speak to. Um, so those are the last uh, two questions generally. I mean, the the challenge is um, just money, <laughs> having money, um, and there and just be, you know these things are so expensive, um, and you know every great producer, Beth certainly first among them and knows how to make every dollar count um, and it is a genius at that. And, but it's still, I think that's the pressure. And I think, and also for me, it's just, um, this may sound like a random thing, but it's recording and, and capturing that because it's, that's not usually part of the commission. Um, and it's not something, it's not like a string quartet that I can, you know, hire musicians to record on my own. Like it's, it's dependent on a company. So like, for example, we still don't have a recording of breaking the waves, even though it's definitely the most successful work that I've ever done. So it's like, that reconciling that in 2021 is, is can be tough and just trying to work on the longevity uh, and preserving these things. Yeah, I think we're all, there are more and more opportunities coming up for, for young composers and mid-career composers and, um, and late career composers. Um, and so, but I just think more and hopefully, I think that we're in a golden age of, of opera as has been said um, over the past decade, you know, in tandem with, with Beth's amazing, catalog um really um but it's just i we we're all we have so many amazing people with things to say and just not enough slots to produce them here at home in america so um i hope that more opera companies start doing one or two new works every year 
that would be great. Yeah, I mean, I would say, you know, the pandemic has backed everything up, right? So for every com- every company, there's a backlog now. All the projects that were supposed to be done in 2020, 21 are now getting pushed to 21, 22. Now the fall may probably not happening. So that's getting pushed. And then now that gets shoved into 22, 23. And so this sort of, you know, it means that the there are less projects that then can be taken on because everything is getting moved. And so that's, I'm struggling with that. Um, BMP is very reliant on our relationships with presenters. And so the presenters are pushing their work. And that means that we can sort of take on less developmental work because our pipeline is, is being blocked. Um, uh, and so that's, that's hard for us because as Royce just said, there's way too much work that needs to be created. There's an unbelievable amount of incredible artists creating extraordinary works and not enough means to put them out um, and not enough people to produce it and not enough people to present it. And, um, and so I think that's really the challenge. And of course, in the pandemic, it's like, you know, all of us stage producers, suddenly we've become film producers and it's like, we don't know what we're doing. So we're all just kind of making it up and trying to figure it out. And, um, you know, that's been fun. I mean, it's like, I, it's on my bucket list to be a film, like to make a film. And so I'm like actually going to make a feature length film next month. And so that's like the most exciting thing that's happened in the pandemic by far. I'm so excited. I have no idea what I'm doing, but I'm really like so excited about it. So we'll see how it comes out. (laughs) Well, you are all amazing. I have no doubt it'll come out incredibly well. And um, thank you all so much for this fascinating conversation on behalf of LA Opera and the entire LA Opera and musical and classical music uh, community. I want to thank Beth Morrison, Missy Mazzoli and Royce Fabric so much for your time. Um, you are- Josh, Can oh, I Beth, say Beth. one more thing? Yes, yeah, please. I just want to say one more thing. Um, uh, it, because it's on your website, so it's been announced. I just want to say how excited I am to come back finally post pandemic to come back to um, BMP's relationship with LA Opera and be in person with you all for In Our Daughter's Eyes um, next spring in 22 with Jansky's um, and Nathan Gutton. So can't wait to see you all. Miss you all so much. You've been listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on Apple iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Remember to share with your friends on your favorite social media, and we'll see you at the opera. Bye.